0: Counting down the start in the morning. Usually you can hear the shell.
1: Apologize again, everyone that's on the line. Apparently, uh, Blog Talk is...
0: Uh, no, no worries, man.
1: I'm not quite sure if we're live yet, but uh, I'm going to go ahead and uh, say that we are. We have quite a few just buddies here sitting with Blog Talk. It's uh, been up and down a couple times today. Well, uh, I want to welcome everyone in this evening to another episode of Animal Extant. I'm your host, Mike Richburg. Joining me tonight will be my lovely and talented co host, Ms. Doraine Fisher. Doraine, are you with us? Duran, can you hear me? All right. Well, I apologize again, ladies and gentlemen. Apparently, uh, blog talk is definitely working against us. We're trying to do the best we can with it. If you would just be patient for just a moment, I'll reset a couple more things, and we'll be right back with you. I appreciate everyone's patience. All right, let's try this now. Again, uh, I'd like to welcome everyone in. Sorry about the technical difficulties. Sometimes, you know, we operate in an environment that's less than perfect. And uh, blog talk is a little finicky sometimes. They do the best they can, I'm sure. And, uh, you know, we're just all doing the best we can. We're going to start over. Thank we should be broadcasting now, about five after. Uh Again, welcome, please, everyone, this evening to uh, Animal Extant. Uh, I'm your host, Mike Richford. Joining me tonight will be my co-host, Mr. Rain Fisher, in just a moment. Uh, Tonight's show, we're going to be talking about a very interesting subject, one that's very special to me. Uh, When it comes to the matter of uh, cryptozoology, there are many fascinating aspects, certainly, you know, different things different types of cryptids reported. You know, some swim, some creep through the woods, some fly through the air. And when it comes to these cryptids that are just come out of nowhere, out of the sky, to sweep down and snatch you and fly away, never to be seen again, that's quite a terrifying concept. So that's one of the cryptids. When I look to the flying cryptids, I think to myself, You know, that's certainly a terrifying concept, just being swept away like that. But, you know, it's a hard thing to wrap your brain around. And a lot of people are quite skeptical about such reports. And if it wasn't for, uh, you know, quite a body of evidence, this notion might seem quite preposterous. When I ponder the notion of, of these types of things and what could be flying around and what these reports are all about, one guy that always comes to mind is my good friend and colleague and one of the leading cryptozoologists of our era, Mr. Ken Gerhardt. Ken, are you on the line with us this evening?
0: I am, Mike. How are you doing this evening?
1: I'm doing great, Ken, and I apologize about that hiccup. Uh, sometimes, uh, blog talk, well, it's a finicky thing, and we just do the best we can. But I appreciate your time this evening. How's everything going?
0: Everything is going well um, down here in central South Central Texas, San Antonio, and it's hot and dry as always, and I uh, hope some of our listeners out there aren't dealing with any uh, adverse weather at the moment. I know that we've, we've all kind of been dealing with that over the, the last weeks and uh, months, but um, uh, everything's good, man. It's great to be here. It's an honor to be on your show, and uh, I'm excited to talk about Thunderbirds and other flying cryptids.
1: Well, I I certainly appreciate you being here, as I'm sure uh, everyone in the audience would as well.
2: And, Ken,
1: you know, the whole thing is so fascinating to me. And I guess we want to kind of start at the beginning here. This is not a, a new phenomenon, this notion of these unidentified animals flying through the air and sometimes wreaking havoc. In fact, it's quite Deep-rooted in ancient history, uh, particularly here in North America, with the Native American legends, uh, when we talk about big birds, one of the first things that really, you know, comes to mind, in a lot of people's mind, would be thunderbirds. And typically mm-hmm. there, we're you know, the thunderbird is basically from the American West. And as the legend goes, it would use the thermals, per se, the rising air currents to travel across the West. And there's quite a bit of legend involved in that. Could you touch on that a little bit for the listeners?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, as you said, I mean, you have to acknowledge the fact that you have all of these different Native American legends ranging from the Pacific Northwest, uh, across the American Southwest, the Great Plains. New England, um, you know, even the southeast, uh, North Carolina, places like that, many different native tribes had these legends of, of these beings known as thunderbirds. And often you can see them depicted on the tops of totem poles and uh, and so forth. And um, the name thunderbird, of course, um, you know, you can interpret it, you know, kind of the way you did, and that, you know, they're associated with uh, with storm fronts, but uh, there are more whimsical interpretations that thunderbirds uh, were so great and huge that the beating of their wings caused the thunder, and they were uh, shooting the lightning out of their eyes. Um, you know, there are accounts of them kidnapping uh, people and taking them off to high peaks, Great, you know, Indian braves uh, snatching, plucking killer whales out of the ocean in Puget Sound. So you have all these, you know, uh, great Native American legends of these thunderbirds. Um, and, of you know, as you know, many animals that have been discovered over the past century um, started out um, as native, quote-unquote, native legends, at least in the minds of Western scientists and so forth, until they were proven to be real animals. And, uh, you know, sometimes there is a little bit of a whimsical uh, legend surrounding even uh, uh known species but anyways uh, that's one of the compelling things about the the Thunderbird legends you know you have so many different cultures that are separated by vast distances living in different habitats talking about these great birds and so if you fast forward you know of course you have the modern accounts and sightings of many of which I've collected and investigated and that's where it gets really interesting
1: indeed now when it comes to this Thunderbird phenomenon, like you said, you know, the whole thing, and you touched on this with Native American lore and, and that history, there's almost like a physical side to it and a spiritual being side to the whole thing if mm-hmm. you will. Know. And that's very much the case with the Thunderbird, whereas it was uh, very much a physical, real animal. When you could look up in the sky and see it, to them. But at the same time, it was very
0: much a spiritual being at the same time. Well, sure, and you know, I think the it's all about perspective. And uh, obviously, the indigenous people in this country, or uh, in North America, they they, they had a, a spiritual uh, kind of belief systems and things that 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 endowed many living creatures with spiritual aspects you know all animals uh had spirits and so forth so it's uh, it's a little bit of a gray area now admittedly mike I, I kind of glossed over the the different native american legends i can pronounce a couple of the names <laughs> for example the Dakota, <laughs> yeah, well, uh, people of the midwest no no uh, they call it the waka wakan Uh, But, you know, if I try to pronounce a lot of these names, I'm just going to butcher them So, you know, there are many different people can certainly do their own research And find out that whatever area of the country you live in uh, More than likely, some of the native peoples from that area Had a legend that, you know, pertained to a thunderbird type of being or creature
1: Absolutely, Ken And it wasn't just the thunderbird per se of the west Like you say, even in nearby Georgia To me here in North Georgia, there's legends of the mm-hmm. indigenous peoples, of these large birds that would just swoop down and snatch your kid and fly away with it. And just the most horrifying thing you could imagine. You know, and these people were that, terrified of that, this
0: thing. And, and mm-hmm. there were plenty so, of so stories, and, you know. Yeah, that's Maybe. it. And so Th- Thunderbird is obviously a lot of people think of Thunderbird as an automobile or a, a type of wine. That you might pick up at the gas station. Yeah, but, a cheap uh, wine, You
1: drink. Yeah,
0: it's 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 a name that's become ingrained in popular culture. But um, you know, it's it's fascinating to consider that there could be an actual living animal connected to these various thunderbird legends.
1: Yes, and and you know, so often the case, Ken. There, there, like you say, there is a real creature a real animal living breathing physical entity at the root of many of these legends and as you move into modern time you know there seems to be kind of to me on a casual space i'm sure you would know this in greater detail but it it seemed to me in the 70s the 1970s there was a Mm -hmm. quite a rash it seemed to be quite a peak then. it did you get the impression that Looking back on sightings that come in over the years, that maybe the 70s was a bit of a peak area, a time of uh, sighting and activity?
0: Well, absolutely. The 70s did produce a lot of rapport. Uh, sure modern did. accounts, and I've got a pretty... Same thing. Um, dates back to, all the way back to the 1850s. And uh, in that time, there were... Um, accounts from uh, Pennsylvania and Nevada and Oklahoma and throughout the late 1800s. And then um, sightings continually throughout other other parts of North America uh, that didn't really come to the surface or didn't come to light until the 1970s because in you know, obviously the 1970s culturally was a time Uh, here in America where people were very much into the unexplained, right? There were a lot of TV shows about Bigfoot and UFOs and spiritual activity and different things. So the 70s are kind of viewed as kind of an iconic time period in terms of the unexplained phenomenon because you had all of these reports coming to light, uh, things coming out in the newspaper and so forth. So I think because of that uh, and people having these uh, uh, sightings of these thunderbird, big bird animals – um, we were able to basically uh, bring other reports to the surface that maybe had been buried in time. And so there's a long, long history of, of modern sightings, if you want to look at it that way, of these Thunderbirds. But you're right, the 1970s, uh, particularly the early 1970s up in, up in Pennsylvania, uh, and I should point out real quick, Mike, uh, there are – a handful of states or areas, regions of the of the North America, where there seem to be higher concentrations of thunderbird sightings. Um, for example, the, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, particularly the north central part, the Susquehanna River River Valley, uh, Illinois, and uh, we can talk about you know the mid the mid 1970s in Illinois was kind of a big time for thunderbird activity. Uh, the state of Texas, where I live, and in particular South Central Texas again, dating back to the 70s and before. And recently, Alaska has been kind of a hotbed of Thunderbird sightings, which uh, on one hand is surprising because there's very low population density, but on the other hand, is not surprising because Alaska is obviously a vast and unexplored wilderness area, and you would expect uh, there to be perhaps large predatory birds up there.
1: Yes, indeed. Uh, If if we're going to find something like this, you Alaska is certainly a place that could harbor such an animal in in such fashion that maybe it wouldn't be readily detectable always. I mean, there's a vast amount of area up there. Ken, if you can, take me back to Texas, 1975 for a minute. Raymondville, Texas, 1975, it was like, pandemonium. Now, you and I both have a mutual friend that's uh, actually going to be doing a documentary and a movie about this, mm-hmm. and we'll get it that out later true. probably, but uh, that was quite the sensation. Now, I was totally unaware of it at the time. I was you know, quite young at that time, and I didn't even know what cryptozoology was or anything, but uh, man, can, can you touch on what went down in Raymondville that had everybody so freaked out and it was in all the headlines and on the even on TV.
0: Yeah, for sure, Mike. Um, before I do that real quick, I just wanted to kind of draw, a, a, if I may, draw a brief kind of physical description of the quote-unquote Thunderbird or Big Bird because um, one of the compelling aspects of this mystery is that, you know, they're generally speaking, if you look at the database of all the sightings that I've collected – there is a kind of a a consistent description that that comes out or or characterization of these thunderbirds or big birds. So um, they're described typically uh, as raptor types of birds. By raptor, I mean like a predatory bird kind of, you know, related to the eagles, the condors, kind of in that, uh, you know, hooked beak. And um, uh, very robust birds, uh, short legs. Uh, Typically, they're described as standing when they're seen perched or standing on the ground as standing about five feet tall and having a wingspan of, on average, about 15 feet across. And some people are described much greater, but that's kind of the average. Most people describe them as being very dark colored, like solid colored, usually described as being either black, charcoal, or gray or brown. Um, Some people have described the head as looking a little bit lighter and some people have described the head as looking kind of bald like a condor's the wing is uh, the beak is described as kind of again a hooked beak but a little bit longer and more powerful than a uh, than some and um you know some people have also described it as having big eyes um as looking kind of prehistoric that's a word that comes up a lot but anyway, so you have this kind of compelling eyewitness, you know, I think it is. Now, granted, there are some people that kind of have different descriptions out there, but for the most part, they're consistent. So that's that's interesting. Okay, so now you're asking me about the Texas Big Bird. Uh, Big Bird is a kind of a local regional name here in Texas that we use for these Thunderbirds. That was a, a name that, that was uh, thought up by the media, and, of course, it plays into the Sesame Street thing that was popular in the 1970s. Uh, different Big Bird, of course. Um, but there were a lot of sightings here in, uh, in South Central Texas, starting in the end of uh, the latter part of 1975, and then continuing into the beginning of 1976. And there were sightings. There was a very famous encounter in Raymondville, a very scary encounter that involved a, a gentleman named Armando Grimaldo. But um, we also had uh, sightings um, in and around Brownsville, Las Palmas, Carlingen, San Benito, Velasco, um, McAllen, up and up here into San Antonio. So uh, Robstown. So it was kind of a regional thing. But the the Raymondville account is chilling in that the gentleman actually claimed that he was attacked by this thing. Uh, It swooped down and ripped his clothes. And um, uh, subsequently, uh, Mr. Grimaldo had to be... uh, Rushed to the Willisie County Hospital uh, because he was kind of in a state of shock. So that's one of the accounts that gets a lot of press and a lot of play. But I've I've investigated the 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 flap of 1975-1976. Um, but moreover, I found that there is again a long tradition of Big Bird sightings in the Rio Grande Valley dating back to perhaps the 1950s or 60s, uh, or even before. And uh, on the flip side We have continuing reports And sightings from the Rio Grande Valley And San Antonio area uh, Even in recent years
1: Yes, again that, This is one of those Hotbeds of area uh, area Of activity you talk about The Rio Grande And and, and by the way That's an outstanding description That you gave earlier uh, But to put this in perspective It wasn't just a localized thing. We're talking about a regional flap occurring over a period of time, multiple sightings, and there again, a bit of a history in the area for going back. Maybe who knows how long? We don't really know, but it's certainly there for a while. Now, in this time frame, around the seventy-five, seventy-six area, when these things were going on in the Rio Grande area. There were some pretty credible witnesses and stuff from what I gathered in my little bit of research. was there uh one situation where police officers had noticed uh a bird flying above their patrol vehicle? Uh, yes, and, uh there, there other, were two you know two
0: officers. hmm
1: Yeah, so oh, sorry, I mean Mike. once you start uh, talking about okay. Well go ahead,
0: Ken. Yeah, two two police officers uh in December of 1975 claimed that a, a giant bird f- swooped over their patrol cars one night. Uh, one gentleman's name was Arthur Padilla, uh, I think Homer or Hector Galvan, I maybe may off on the first name there. Now, they described the bird as, as an ex- enormous-looking stork-like or crane-like bird that was white. So that's kind of a little different than some of the other descriptions or most of the descriptions because most people, as I said, describe these big birds as being dark-colored and and not having long legs, uh, you know, like a wading bird. But that's kind of what they described. But it it did kick off kind of the whole big bird, you know, from that point on, beginning in January of 1976, there were many sightings. Um, On New Year's Day, two young girls, uh, Jackie Davies and Tracy Lawson, were playing in their backyard in Harlingen on on New Year's Day 1976 and claimed they saw this scary five-foot black bird, in their yard, and it was looking at them in a menacing way. That made the local newspapers, and uh, they there were apparently some tracks that were found, some large three-toed tracks. Uh, one week later, there was a gentleman down in Brownsville named Alberto Guajardo that claimed that uh, this giant thing flew into his trailer home one night, and when he went out to investigate, he saw this weird-looking giant bird. He described it as kind of not of this world, <clears throat> so it was kind of a creepy yeah. description. And then a week after that was the um, uh, the the uh, one I talked about with Armando Grimaldo getting attacked. Uh, there were some uh, soldiers from uh, up here in San Antonio working at uh, Kelly Air Force Base that sighted yeah, it down in Yeah, a couple of military personnel. Yeah, yeah military mean, I mean, that's personnel sighted it mm-hmm, down in Poteet. Um, and, you know, a, just a, a wide range of, of people that I've talked to. You know, most of these Thunderbird eyewitnesses, and, you know, not just Texas, but all over, um, are typically people that are very credible. You know, I, I, I've interviewed many of these people that um, to you know, ordinary backgrounds. Some are police officers or teachers or, you know, farmers, ranchers, you name it. Uh, many of them are outdoorsmen, hunters and fishermen, and then people that are familiar with different types of birds. So, um When they report these things to me, I take them pretty seriously. And just going back for a second, Mike, we were talking about five feet tall, 15-foot wingspan. Uh, I'm sure most of your listeners are educated enough to understand that that's about twice as big as any known bird, uh, at least in modern times. To put it into perspective, the Andean condor, I'm sorry, the California condor has a 10-foot wingspan. I think you're looking at 11 feet on an Andean. And both of those birds stand about four feet tall, so maybe a little taller. So, uh, you know, this is a truly, these are truly enormous, gigantic birds. No, nothing that's that, uh, that's recognized by modern science.
1: Yeah, you're talking about something that's big enough where you, where you look at it you say, well, that's not an eagle, that's not a regular eagle, that's just too big to be like a bald eagle or a golden eagle or what have you, or a condor, perhaps. I mean, it's, yeah, that's it's incredible, it. that's some it. of the accounts. And, uh, you know, I I think about this, and you, you have these regions, and I wonder what they have in common, you know, and why, you know, certain areas would tend to be good habitat, per se, than others and whatever. And our good friend and co-host is on the line, Mr. Rain Fisher. Rain, how are you this
2: Hey, guys, better late than never, huh?
1: That's okay, Dwayne. Absolutely. You know, talk, <laughs> talk, have a hiccup or two every now and then. That's okay. <laughs> it happens all the time. But uh, we're all good now. I'm glad you came down. We were just about to talk about your home state of Illinois. Okay. I was about to ask, oh, excuse me, I just mispronounced it, too, Illinois. Uh, we about, right. I was about to ask you, <laughs> there seemed to be quite, uh, there again, about, same time frame, roughly, that stuff was going on in Rio Grande. There was a lot of activity then. It seemed to also be a, quite a bit of activity in the Illinois area where you hail from. And I was going to ask, right. Ken, of those accounts from Illinois, Ken, are, are we talking about the same typical physical description, again, that was represented most of the, in most of the cases there in the Rio Grande flap?
0: Well, um, big picture, yes. Most of the descriptions coming out of Illinois are very similar. Um, but, you know, we, we would be remiss if we didn't mention the most famous incident involving a, a quote-unquote Thunderbird when we talk about what's called the Lawndale incident, uh, which occurred on July 25th, 1977, uh, in Lawndale, Illinois, which is smack dab in the middle of the snake. Um, yeah. A young, young boy named Marlon Lowe, he was nine years old at the time, weighed about 60 pounds, was out playing trick-or-treat in his backyard with two other boys uh, when suddenly, and this is about 8 or 9 o'clock at night, when suddenly these two giant birds approached, swooped down, uh, caused one of the boys to dive into a little kiddie swimming pool, and one of them, uh, according to four adult witnesses that were, that were present, Marlon's parents and two other adults that were visiting, this thing picked Marlon off the ground and carried him uh, about two feet off the ground for like maybe 20 feet before he was able to punch and kick and, and escape. And uh, then these two birds kind of took off. And uh, the the description that um, the Lowe family gave to the local media and police was that the birds had a, uh, a look very similar to a condor. In fact, they described them as black, but having kind of a white ring of feathers ruffles around their neck, which is... Uh, indicative of the Andean, not the California condor. Um, That's what I wondered. But, mm-hmm. uh, and you know the wingspans they described. I'm sorry, Doreen. The wingspan they described was a little small in perspective. They described birds that had a 10 foot wingspan, which is big. Don't get me wrong; it's a big bird, um, but it's you know a little bit small in terms of Thunderbird's uh, descriptions.
2: Hmm. Well, I'm wondering. Okay, that's my area. Springfield, Illinois is where I was originally from, and that's very close to where I am from. I mean, that Lawndale is very close to there. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering, do you have any idea what the significance is of that area? They, the, the sightings do seem to be concentrated in that area and down into the St. Louis area. They're following the rivers is what it looks like to me. And what's significant about that that you think as far as maybe food sources and things like that? Do you have any, any thoughts on that? Or,
0: yeah, That is interesting, Doreen. Um, well, also we should also add I've got some sightings from the Shawnee National Forest in the southern part of the state. And right. in recent years, uh-huh. a lot of sightings from far northern uh, Illinois, kind of up there near uh, Lake Michigan and yeah. Chicago area. Um mm-hmm. I've got a I've got a guys I've got a giant map on my wall here in my apartment. I wish I could show it to you right now. We're Thunderbird awesome. sightings marked with a push pin. And if you look at it, there seems to be kind of a what looks like kind of a migration pattern that comes up out of Texas, uh, shoots across um the Ozarks and eastern Oklahoma, western Arkansas. And then southern Missouri up into Illinois and all the way to Lake Michigan. So, I mean, this is mm. highly speculative, but you could potentially infer by looking at this map that these birds seem to follow that that migration route up and down. Uh, perhaps they are traveling from, uh, you know, s- South Texas and maybe the, specifically the, the Gulf Coast or maybe some of the mountains across the border in Mexico. And then they are kind of migrating or traveling for whatever reason up to the, you know, the Great Lakes area, and maybe it has to do with, um, you know, water systems or um, food sources, maybe food sources in, you know, past eras, you know, that, that are, you know, still kind of imprinted on their memory systems if they were following the migrations of other herding animals or something, you know. Again, we're, you know, we, just, we have to speculate that's all we can do, but it is worth well, pointing sure. out that when you look at this map there is a giant hole um in the middle where you do not see any thunderbird sightings from Kansas Nebraska the Dakotas you know so okay. you know why why is it and then they pick up again in the Rocky Mountains got a lot of sightings from the Rockies but um so it, you know it, again it's it's kind of circumstantial evidence but when you plot all the sightings on a map and you realize that you have these clusters and these apparent migration patterns and moreover, you have areas that are completely devoid of sightings. So that that kinda of makes sense, doesn't it, from a from a zoological yeah. perspective?
2: Mm-hmm. Sure does. And that would include the Mississippi Valley, uh, where in Alton, Illinois, where the Piasaw mm-hmm. bird is on the side of the cliff. And I wonder if you had any thoughts on that. That is is the craziest looking bird I've ever seen in my life. Uh, four talons, an uh, almost human-looking face, antlers, a long spiked tail. What do you think about that?
0: Yeah, um, you know, we actually, there's a <laughs> clarification that should probably be made, Doreen, because you mentioned the Piasaw. Um I did a lecture on that last year when I was up in Alton. It's true there are a lot of big bird, thunderbird sightings from around the area, around Alton, St. Louis, Mm -hmm. It's true that you also have this legend of a uh, of a mythical creature known as the pious saw. But what Mm -hmm. I found is that the uh, pictograph, the painting on the uh, the big cliff walls over the Mississippi river there. And obviously you have, you've got the modern pictographs which were done by modern artists that are kind of paying an homage to the, the ancient pictographs that were, were found on those cliff walls hundreds of years ago when the first missionaries went to the area. The original Piasaw that was painted on that cliff wall did not have wings, and it was never called a bird. So what Hmm. I found is that in the 1830s, a local college professor there in Alton named John Russell wrote an article uh, about the Piasaw based on the Piasaw pictograph. But at that time, he claimed that the Piasaw slated meant the bird that devoured men. And that, the, and that it was this giant bird-like or winged creature. Well, I don't know if we can say that's true. I think he may have. There's a, there, there are strong indications that this guy Russell actually fabricated that part of the Piasau story and hmm. basically created kind of a fictional work and turned it into a bird. Whereas originally, if you look at the original pictograph, huh. it's like sign of a dragon-type creature, but it doesn't have wings. But it's got a man-like face with a beard and a kind of a long serpentine body. Yeah. So if you do some Internet searching, you'll find renditions. And, of course, no one knows what you really know. There are some verbal descriptions of the original Piusaw pictograph, but uh, those are very old. And uh, uh, those pictographs have long since crumbled away and disintegrated and fallen into the Mississippi River. So, um, so, but, but, but still you have this compelling, you know, just you have these eyewitness sightings of Thunderbirds around Alton. That's true. Particularly most of them were in 1940s, April of 1948. There was a rash of sightings that made the newspaper of giant birds flying over Alton and St. Louis. And many people did associate it with these, uh, the legend of the Saw. But they were, I think, kind of drawing on this, this article that was written in the 1830s by this college professor, which may be completely fictional. We don't know. But that doesn't okay. mean you don't have Thunderbird sightings in and around Alton, St. Louis. But I don't know if Saw means giant bird or uh, if yeah. the pictograph in any way relates to those those Thunderbird sightings.
2: Well, the terrain around Alton is a lot of cliffs. I just think it's interesting. People talk about condor sightings or supposed condor sightings, and that just seemed like a perfect area for that kind of bird. I don't know if that's Mm -hmm. what it is, of course, but uh, it's interesting in comparison with the middle of Illinois, which is Open Plains, like Mm -hmm. where the Lawndale incident took place, it's just kind of a curious thing. And uh, I always wonder, too, if we aren't talking about maybe two different kinds of big birds or what's going on with that, but uh, I don't know. Like you're talking about the migration and everything. I mean, if they're just migrating north or, I don't know, what do you think?
0: Well, it's it's all an assumption, and you know, I don't yeah. know if, if predatory birds or raptors, which is what we think they are, we don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, are typically are typically migratory birds, anyways? You know, I think they ha- they True. have a wide range of or habitat. But you bring up a great point, Doraine, because when you look at the the areas where we have a lot of thunderbird sightings, we're talking about vastly different types of habitats. Mm-hmm. Uh, Illinois does have you know, some, some forests and things and a lot of waterways, but it's also, right. uh, you've got the vast plains area kind of in the center part of the state. Uh, South Texas, where we have all these big bird sightings, is basically like a very, fl- as flat as you can possibly imagine. Right. And there's not a lot of forest. It's a lot of mesquite and kind of scrubby, brushy trees. Uh, Pennsylvania, where we have a lot of thunderbird sightings, now you're talking about kind of rolling hills and deciduous forests and then Alaska where you've got these vast mountain ranges so you're talking about uh I'm just speaking here as a, as a as a zoologist you know you you wouldn't expect to find the same species obviously covering all of these different diverse ecosystems that are so drastically different so yeah we 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 could potentially be dealing with maybe a couple of different birds or animals here
2: well, we have uh, sightings of a bird that has more rectangular wings. And then you have others describing a condor-type bird, and mm-hmm. like vultures. Condors are like vultures, and they have the fingers on the ends of their yeah. wings and everything. Big difference there, and uh, it's kind of a curious thing to me. I just wondered what you thought about that. So,
0: No, that that's true, and uh, this would probably be a good point for us to to do a couple things. One is to dispel the notions of misidentifications of known birds.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, You
0: know, people have suggested for years, for example, we just talked about the Lawndale incident, these two birds swooping down and picking up a young local wildlife officials came out and said, oh, they were turkey vultures. Well, turkey vultures, you know, obviously most people are very familiar with those. And B, they're not going to swoop down and they're not capable of swooping down and picking up a small boy. That's they don't have the right kind of talons they're you know they're much smaller True. and so forth uh, other people have suggested as thunderbirds that maybe people could be misidentifying um, cranes and storks and herons and uh known eagle species like golden eagles and bald eagles and so forth, and potentially even as you mentioned condors that maybe are kind of out of their area because the 400 known condors in, in the United States are well monitored pretty closely. They all live in California, Arizona, and Utah, and they're uh, you know they're they're watched closely. You wouldn't expect to find a condor flying around Texas or Illinois or Pennsylvania. It's not impossible. It's just you wouldn't expect that. So mm-hmm. uh, um, my point here is that obviously some people do see birds large birds that they're not used to seeing and may think they've seen a Thunderbird and per, per, perhaps log reports. So we have to consider that yes, some percentage of the Thunderbird reports on record are probably known birds that people just weren't familiar with. Um exactly. on the other hand, um I think there's a couple of theories that I and talk about here as far as what these Thunderbirds could be if you guys are, are interested in that. I think that's um Oh yeah. To me that please go definitely. The fascinating <laughs> aspect of the mystery. Okay. So based on the physical description that we went over before, um, there's a couple of possibilities. The most conservative possibility is that you could be dealing with a known species of eagle. And in this case, I would suggest probably the golden eagle, Aquila chrysados, which can have a wingspan of about eight, maybe even nine feet across. If you had a really gigantic outsized specimen, Um, they're not seen a whole bunch in certain parts of the country. Other parts of the country, you might see them more frequently. But you can imagine that people could potentially be seeing kind of freak individuals or giant individuals. You know that gi- gigantism occurs in nature in all kinds of different ways. You often have outsized individuals of any particular species. So maybe we are dealing with just giant, you know, kind of freak outsized eagles of a new species. That's the conservative theory. The second theory pertains to something that's known as Washington's eagle or the great eagle. And the great naturalist John James Audubon in the early 1800s claimed that he observed on several occasions and eventually shot and painted this great eagle that was much bigger than any bald eagle or golden eagle. He measured it as having a 10-foot wingspan, uh, kind of a brown coloration, a dark beak, and um, for years, it was accepted as a valid species, even though there weren't a lot of, you know, claimed sightings. But then over time, modern or as no more sightings surfaced, ornithologists kind of dismissed it all as a mistake and thought, okay, well, either Audubon had seen a very large juvenile bald eagle and painted that, or maybe he just made the whole thing up. So it is possible that there is a species of eagle and, uh, endemic to North America, And and that John James Audubon did, in fact, identify it properly in the early 1800s. And maybe they're just very rare and people hardly ever see them now. And those are our thunderbirds, these giant eagles uh, that he referred to as the Washington's eagle or the great eagle. And then the third possibility, which I think is really fascinating, is that we could be dealing with a prehistoric survivor. And specifically, uh, there were these great birds that lived during the Ice Age the lower part of the Pleistocene and before, and they were known as the Teratorns. And um, Teratorns were related to cranes and modern condors and vultures. They were We don't know a whole bunch about them, but they were predatory birds. Uh, they probably spent a lot of time on the ground, but uh, one North American species known as Iolornis had a wingspan of about 18 feet across, and its fossils have been found in California and Nevada. And uh, if you look at uh, kind of reconstructions of these teratorns, they look basically like what people are describing on these modern thunderbirds. Uh, You know, they have the big, long-hooked beak. Uh, They were kind of big, powerful birds uh, and so forth. So, you know, we don't know what color they were or anything like that, obviously. We assume they were probably dark-colored or black or, or, you know, charcoal. So, um, you know, is it possible then that you could have a, a breeding population, very small numbers of these, these Iolornis or Teratorn birds uh, perhaps living in wilderness areas, and been, you know, maybe people are only seeing them on very rare occasions. So that, that's kind of the romantic possibility. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it would certainly explain the size that people are describing in terms of a 15-foot wingspan and, and so forth.
2: Hmm. Pretty interesting would. stuff. <laughs> um yeah, I have a question though about the the eagles you're talking about.
0: Mm-hmm. the Washington They're,
2: eagle. Yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, I don't know if it was an unofficial uh, event that happened in 1868 I believe it was in Missouri where a child was picked up out of a schoolyard by what they called an eagle. And they'd had several Mm -hmm. large eagle sightings that year. And the child, anyway, the the rest of the kids in the schoolyard caused such a ruckus that the eagle, the supposed eagle, dropped the child, and Mm -hmm. the child died, unfortunately. Have you heard anything about that? Does that sound familiar? And.
0: Yes, that's a famous case. It actually, uh, um, a lot of people have, I think, due to a misprint over time, a lot of people attribute that sighting to Missouri. It actually happened in Mississippi, uh, Tippa County, Mississippi in 1868. A young eight-year-old boy was carried away by, you know, what people described as a large eagle, and as you said, he was dropped and fell to his death.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: there. There are, you know, it kind of sounds like a little bit like a scarier version of the Lawndale incident, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, There are a handful of other similar incidents. Um, In fact, most recently I interviewed a gentleman from uh, Luling, Texas, which is just outside of San Antonio. He got in touch with me and told me that when he was a young boy, one of these big birds swooped down and tried to pick him up. It didn't actually make contact, but it, it dove down at him. And I've got a handful Mm. of similar accounts in my database. So um, eagles obviously have very large, powerful talons. Um, But but here's the thing about raptors or eagles. The rule of thumb is that a raptor can only pick up about half of its body weight. And all birds, of course, are very lightweight because they have hollow bones and they have to be aerodynamic. So even a very large bald eagle, for example, a golden eagle, usually only weighs about 25 pounds tops and that's a that's a big eagle with like an eight foot wingspan so that still doesn't make sense that a 25 pound or even if you had a giant eagle that was say 30 40 50 pounds could pick up a little boy that weighed 60 pounds that's just it just doesn't work that way so you'd have to be talking about a bird that probably weighed you know more in the range of 50 to 100 pounds and again we're talking about a five foot bird with a 15 foot wingspan so that that theoretically could could make sense. And, um, you know, but the thing we don't know about the Teratorns is if they, they had the powerful grasping talons that would have allowed them to pluck and carry, a uh, you know, a human, even a young human away.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, that's the correct. Eagles yeah, actually we,
2: have the equipment.
0: Yes. Uh, we know,
1: like uh, you referenced it, some birds are built that way, Specifically with reference to the uh, Design of the feet and the talons But mm-hmm. we don't know That much about some of the territories, really So it's hard to get a feel For that uh, Certainly the Washington's eagle If Mr. Audubon Knew what he was doing
0: And you would like to think That's one fellow that would kind of know a bird When he seen it Uh <laughs>
1: You know, he identified if, if, tw- he
0: identified <laughs> twenty five other at least twenty five other species when he was alive, so he was pretty good. Right?
1: I mean, there, there's societies named after the fella and stuff like that. Uh, so he was kind of <laughs> knowledgeable on the matter, and I would have to kind of <laughs> lean with what he said on that. And of course, you know, I myself was a witness to a large bird encounter uh, thing. I'll get into it just a minute. I did want to go back. And touch on one thing real quick, okay, we had a question earlier from the chat uh-huh. room. I wanted—I didn't want to just get lost in the shuffle. Uh, but you touched on this also uh, in Alaska. Uh, there was uh-huh. a question from chat. wanting to know uh, with your recent endeavors in Alaska with uh, some filming you've been doing up there, did you get a chance to follow up on any Big Bird sightings then or, or take any sightings or reports in?
0: Well, that's a good question. Um Alaska does have, as we mentioned earlier, there are Native American, uh, many tribes in Alaska, particularly like the Klingit people, uh, have thunderbirds in their mythology. So the thunderbird is a very powerful symbol, uh, kind of legendary animal in and throughout Alaska. Um, in 2002, there, was, uh, there were some famous sightings that occurred in southwest Alaska. Uh, first, a, a, a tractor operator named Moses Kupchak uh, claimed that he saw this giant bird flying overhead uh, this was in a place called uh, togiak and then at a place uh, a few days later five days later in a place called manakotak uh, a bush pilot named john boker and his passenger claimed that they saw this giant bird with a 14 foot wingspan flying kind of just below the his uh his airplane and he was able to to estimate the size pretty accurately because its wingspan was about half of his airplane. So he, he estimated a 14 foot wingspan. So those accounts made the newspapers Um, and actually modern sightings of Thunderbirds date back to the early 1970s in Alaska. Um, But several years ago, after I wrote my big bird book and appeared on an episode of monster quest about Thunderbirds and began to do lectures and so forth, I was contacted By uh, several different people From the state of Alaska uh, People that didn't know each other That had sightings of thunderbirds Or big birds Uh, One was up near Denali Up in Denali National Park Uh, A gentleman was out there uh, Worked in the park and saw this giant uh, Bird perched on a craggy peak Uh, Another gentleman was fishing with his sons At a place called Tangle Lakes And he saw uh, a thunderbird Around the same time period And um, Then another gentleman from uh, Southeast Alaska, down in uh, Prince of uh, Prince of Wales Island, contacted me, and he had seen a thunderbird. So I I had a handful of uh, Alaskan thunderbird sightings, and so when I went up to film the uh, missing in Alaska this past year, uh, the producers, of course, had me, uh, you know, track down or attempt to track down some of these eyewitnesses and and talk to them and and follow up on some of these sightings. We, We did a we did a thunderbird episode. Uh, And we did um, uh, talk to one gentleman who claimed he'd seen a Thunderbird. But uh, all of these other people that had contacted me, uh, unfortunately, we we weren't able to track any of them down for the episode. Uh, One lady lived in a small town, and I, I, despite my best efforts, and we're talking a really, Alaska's obviously got a lot of really small towns. So uh, it's not (laughs) always easy to find people up there. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's not as easy to find people and track them down as you would think, even if you have a phone number. So uh, well, sure, long story short, I unfortunately wasn't able to, to track down any of the eyewitnesses that had contacted me over the previous years. Of course, it had been a while since I'd spoken to any of them regarding their sightings. So uh, I was a little disappointed because I was hoping to, to maybe interview these people face-to-face as opposed to over the phone or via uh, email or whatever But um, we did explore the Thunderbird uh, Sightings in Alaska And uh, you know I think we had kind of a fun uh, A fun time of it And I, hopefully we made a pretty Strong case in terms of a, a Thunderbird sightings In and over Alaska
1: Well yes And there certainly is quite a history There and like you say We, we can't always uh, get to talk Face to face Uh, With people that might like to uh, Share their experience And that always is best But you know We live in the real world And things don't always work out that way We do the best we can certainly Uh, You know me personally uh, I've been into cryptozoology You know as a hobby for quite a while And uh, one of the most profound things That's happened to me in my lifetime Is uh, I was just kind of minding my own business Heading down uh, Highway 21 In South Carolina one morning In 1989 and I saw what I would describe as an eagle, much like a big golden eagle. I mean, basically, for all intents and purposes, uh, the same thing, except very, very large. An animal that picked that deer, a small deer, a fawn, deer up off the road and flew away with it. A, de- mm. a, a deer now, not a rabbit, not 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 a you know, coyote, but like, you know, a 40-pound deer. Or, or maybe more, wow. maybe as much as 50 pounds. This bird, and I didn't even realize what I was looking at at first, because I was just you know driving down the road, and this is in the middle of my lane, down on a long straightaway. I kept getting closer and closer. I couldn't figure out what I was looking at. I couldn't. My brain couldn't tell me what I, I was seeing because of the way it was. Its posture, and it was standing on the deer. But it looked up at me, and it kind of bowed its wings open. And then I realized, you know, oh, my God, it's a bird. It's just that big. It's not a horse with a tarp Mm. over it or anything like that. It's just a bird (laughs) that's that big. And uh, it turned around, hopped in one move around, 180, on top of deer, and just picked it up, and with three cycles of its wings, it was gone. It was over the top of the old-growth deciduous forest canopy and gone to the east. Wow. And I was just, like, totally blown away. I just had to, like, pull over. I, like, I kept going for a little ways. I drove, like, a mile or two, and it's just, like, I had to kind of pull over and just kind of rationalize what just happened because I seen it good, and it didn't make sense. And uh ever since then, I've just been so fascinated and obsessed with these big birds, especially big eagles. So when you hit, mentioned Washington's eagle earlier, I got, uh, very excited because that was one of the candidates that I immediately went to that maybe this is, you know, what I saw. So it certainly is mm-hmm. very close. Uh one of the other candidates that maybe would fit, you know, the type of animal I saw per se was uh the host eagle of New Zealand that apparently wow. uh it more most recently went uh extinct uh in the last few hundred or several hundred years. Uh may have been alive as as recently as six hundred years ago. Uh, but of course, that's a whole world away per se. But mm-hmm. my point is, these types of very large, giant birds have existed in in very recent times. We know this. In the case of the Haast eagle, we're talking about something we know fed on Polynesians, on humans, and other primates. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was uh, it, it's just something big enough with that 10 or larger 10-foot wingspan that you could actually take a child, a person. Now, typically, these types of animals, when you're talking about large predators is what they are, for the most part, some of them are scavengers. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. Quickly, you know, the birds of prey also include the, the vulture and condor types. As well as the eagle and the hawk type, a little bit different build, like you touched on earlier. Uh, there's certainly some of the sightings could be contributed, attributed, excuse me, to uh, an uh, animal, perhaps of either type. But what I saw was definitely more of a eagle type animal. And mm-hmm. the thing about this, these eagles and hawks, the ones that are like the uh, actual, and even an owl. I guess, except at nighttime, the ones that are actual raptors that uh, actively kill prey and don't scavenge, it's quite a brutal thing the way they they go about dismembering the prey and processing the kill, if you will. And and it's certainly something that's probably very much pre-programmed into our psyche, if you will, into our psychological DNA, we're pre-programmed to be totally terrified of these things.
0: You oh, yeah.
2: That?
0: Oh yeah, in some cases, Because they, they fed on our ancestors on a regular basis for millions of years or at least tens or hundreds of thousands of years, maybe.
1: <laughs> right. And hmm. in some cases, uh, there's plenty of uh, fossil evidence to support this, particularly from Africa and South Africa in, in particular. Uh we've seen where there's direct predation on pre-modern human ancestors. We know this. We know these big birds. They've been around and recently. Even perhaps now still flying. I saw it. I mean, so I know a lot of people are skeptical when it comes to such preposterous claims, but when you look at the body of evidence, the, the Native American folklore and other folklore from around the world, not just in North America, but and then on into the contemporary sightings, like you say, and, and we're talking about hundreds, maybe, of contemporary sightings. Is that correct? To put it in perspective. Um.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, I've, uh, in my database, I have um, probably well over a hundred um, sightings that I think are like really, um, you know, and these are people; these are cases that have been well investigated, or I've interviewed people personally, and so forth. There are, unfortunately, these days in the age of the Internet, if you go on to a website where someone's talking about Thunderbirds and then suddenly you'll have ten people posting anonymously, anonymously saying, I've seen one, I've seen one, I've seen one, um, and they could very well be true, but unfortunately without you know attaching their name to it like you just did, and by the way, Mike, thanks for sharing that sighting. That was really cool. Um, oh, it's, no.
2: just,
0: <laughs> it's harder to verify the sightings. Now, we have to point out there's no physical evidence. I'm going to play skeptic here for a second. The problem with right, the to
1: get phenomenon yeah.
0: is there's no there's no physical evidence. No one's got a giant feather right. or a bone or a giant pile of bird crap on their car or anything, <laughs> a nest, anything that would lead us to believe you know to to take, take to a scientist and say here's definitive proof. It's all anecdotal right. evidence. Um, we should probably mention the the only alleged photographic evidence is a gentleman uh, a few days after the Lawndale incident, a gentleman named. Uh, uh Texas John Huffer was was uh, Lake Shelbyville, Illinois, and he filmed these two giant birds coming off of a tree. Now, it's hard to judge how big the birds are because you don't have a lot of scale. You see the, t- the trees a little bit uh, in the shot. But uh, some scientists have tried to dismiss that footage as portraying turkey vultures. But to my eyes, these birds look much larger than turkey vultures. So I think he may have potentially film these these big birds or these thunderbirds but like all photographic evidence in the field of cryptozoology it's it's just not conclusive enough so um but we do have a lot of uh eyewitness descriptions the the descriptions are very similar and the other thing is i think we're really scratching the surface as far as the accounts that have been investigated because i think unlike bigfoot a lot of people aren't familiar with thunderbirds or the thunderbird phenomenon and may Mm -hmm. have seen these birds at some point in their life, but just didn't think that, you know, they they saw this, uh, you know, they saw it and thought, wow, that's just, that's a huge bird. And maybe Uh they never told anybody or reported it to anybody. And uh, so you you can imagine how many accounts are out there that we've just never heard about.
2: Well, um, I photograph birds. I do that a lot. I'm out in the woods a lot uh, watching them all the time. Um, You know, what are your thoughts about that as far as, like the two hunters and mm-hmm. describing such big birds and everything and, you know, the authorities try to dismiss it as turkey vultures or whatever. Um, what are your thoughts about, and, you know, this is very unscientific too, but I often think that I have a better grasp of what is a bigger bird than normal. Mm -hmm. like any outdoorsman, you know, anybody who spends a lot of time outside and you're looking up at birds a lot of the time. What do you think about that as far as credible witnesses and things like that? I mean, you know, they're always telling us that we can't gauge the size, and I agree with that. But if we're seeing a bird that we don't normally see and it looks a lot bigger than what we normally see, I mean, I realize some birds are higher... Flying higher than others.
0: Mm-hmm. It's um, hard to judge the, the size sometimes, right, when they're high up in the air.
2: Exactly, and some birds, I guess, from what I've been looking at, uh, the Andean condor will only fly to maybe fifteen thousand feet, whereas the rupels griffin vulture will fly as high as thirty-seven thousand feet. Wow. Um, is that? Yeah, I mean. Is there any significance to the fact that these are two types? One's a condor, 15,000 feet. This is the biggest bird on Earth that we know of, right? The Indian condor?
0: Mm Mm-hmm.
2: Doesn't fly higher than 15,000 feet, supposedly. I don't know how they do this research. But then the Rupal's Griffin vulture, 37,000 feet. That's quite a ways up. And... I'm not sure what I'm trying to have here.
0: Yeah. No, well, I, I I'm, think I'm, you're, you're leading us into an interesting incredible. point, which is wow. the the point that you made about eyewitness. You know, obviously, the, the skeptics always say that eyewitness testimony is not it's not scientifically viable because it's and you know, it's, not, it's not. It's not. not I agree
2: with that, but I just feel like when I'm out there, I have a pretty good idea of what's normally there.
0: Yep. And. and hmm. No, you know I, I, I'm what I'm saying. And, yeah, and tying it into, uh, you know, again, um, I think eyewitness, I was going to defend eyewitness testimony and say that there should be a direct correlation between the skill of the observer. So as right. you said, bird watchers, uh, I have a lot of sightings from hunters, ranchers, right. uh, you know, people that, that work in the outdoors and see a lot of, of species of birds. Uh, that uh, testimony is obviously a lot more valuable than uh, Mr. City Mouse from New York City that's driving <laughs> out to Pennsylvania for the first time and sees, you know, a vulture or something. Well, um, we
2: all get dismissed, you know, if we say, well, that was a, the biggest bird I've ever seen in my life, and I'm out there every day, and I see birds flying by this tree every single day. And this bird was, you know, 10 times the size of the ones I normally see up there. And you know it gets dismissed, and I understand it's not scientific, but it's just I guess a point that I wanted to make. You know that you know some witnesses in this right. case are more credible okay. than others, and so that's a
1: good point, Doreen. That's a really good point. And I mean, in your case, as somebody that's outside a lot with a camera and seen a lot of birds and been around a little bit, you know, a lot uh, out there. Yeah, I mean, you know, you kind of know. You've seen you've seen all the usual characters you know who the usual suspects are and whatnot well ken uh we have a caller on the line that's been gracious enough to hang with us through all our technical difficulties at the beginning of the show and has been on the line now for quite some time and i would like to know if you could go ahead and take a quick call if you don't mind
0: No, well, sounds like fun let's do it all
1: right all right 419 area code 419 you are on the air go ahead Hello, Ken. It's Elisa. I have a quick question for you.
0: Yes. Hi, Lisa.
1: Um, what got you into all the crypto stuff?
0: Oh, uh, wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've I've been into it ever since I was a, a young boy. Um, back in the late '70s, I saw a TV show about Bigfoot, and I
1: just
0: <laughs> I was captivated. And uh, had to know everything I could about uh, Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster and uh, all of the cryptids and cryptozoology. But of course, I never planned on making it a career choice. It was just kind of a lifelong interest. But um, as I was growing up, I, uh, I had an opportunity to travel around the world with my mother, and uh, uh, I traveled all over the world to the Amazon jungle in South America, and uh, Australia, Africa, Asia, all these fabulous places. And that culminated uh, at age 15, traveling to Loch Ness in Scotland and um, looking into the Loch Ness Monster phenomenon. So uh, it's just been something that I've been interested in my whole life, really. I've never seen a cryptid with my own eyes. People always ask me that. Have you ever seen one of these things? No, I haven't. Um, I believe that I've heard and recorded Bigfoot vocalizations, at least on one occasion, But I didn't actually, again, I didn't see the thing with my own eyes. It was kind of deep in the brush. I just heard it and recorded it. So um, that's as close as I have ever, believe I've ever come to any of these things. But uh, the convincing thing, of course, is the the number of eyewitnesses that I've interviewed through the years, people from all walks of life, uh, you know, come across as very credible, that have had sightings or, or encounters with things that they just can't explain. And at some point, you you know, you just have to to accept the fact that um, there are things out there that that can't be explained, is that that science hasn't documented yet. Well, All right. thank, well thank you, thank you
1: Lisa. Thank Thanks you. for
0: calling in. That was a great question.
1: <laughs> thank All you, Brandon. Right. Yes, sure was,
0: uh, Lisa.
2: Bye.
1: Goodbye, Alisa. Thanks for calling. We appreciate you. Yeah, that's, that's interesting, Ken. Uh, it's certainly, uh, you know, I'm sure that uh, you, while you've not maybe seen one with your own eyes, you, you certainly talked to a lot of folks that have, and that's a good place to be it, when, when you have such a strong interest, and in, in, as you surely do have a passion for it yourself.
0: Well, thank you. Yeah, that's, I think... Um... The founder of cryptozoology, of course, was Dr. Bernard Hovland's, um and one of the points that he made early on uh, was that in order to be a cryptozoologist, you have you really should have two uh, attributes. One is passion, uh, and I like to think I've got a, a decent amount of that. Uh, the other one is patience. Uh, you know, because you have <laughs> to spend a lot of time. you Really, have to spend a lot of time uh, learning your trade and. Um, investigating um all of the information that's out there objectively and critically. And um so, you know, I, I encourage young people in particular, and I, I, I think Elisa, she sounded like she might be young and maybe interested in cryptozoology. I always try to encourage young people that have an interest to to get involved and to pursue it. You know, it's not that crazy um, you know, it's not like the old days where you might get locked up or <laughs> <literally> <laughs> a lot of right. a lot of uh, a lot of very intelligent and uh very sane people are you know investigating these these types of phenomenon.
2: Uh, a lot but of them if you are do on it, TV you, too. Uh,
0: some of them are. You have to be passionate, <laughs> and you have to you have to be patient sometimes too. And just you know, just like a fisherman or or a hunter, sometimes you just kind of you're patient and you just kind of, you know, wait for your opportunity to, uh, uh, you know, to find the subject
2: that has no end. I mean, it never gets boring to me. I mean, you know, if you get bored with one cryptid, you can move on to the next one for a while. You know, if there's more going on in the big bird world, or if that gets boring, there might be something going on in the Bigfoot world. It's just, it's endless as far as you know, holding there's, your interest. There's,
0: there's so much that people don't know about. Uh, people all have heard of Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster and the Jersey Devil and some of those. But there are creatures like the Thunderbird and, and many others out there that, that maybe don't get as much attention or or the, the respect
2: they deserve. Well, that's what we're trying to do with this show. <laughs> and I applaud well, you.
1: Well, that's you got, a good got... point. We're trying. God bless us. We're trying. <laughs> <laughs> but Ken uh, One thing you touched on earlier That I, I wanted to go back to Briefly uh, When you talk about eyewitnesses And Durain and it, it touched on this too And uh, you know Trying to put in things like uh, Reference points Often when something's in the sky It's hard to get a good reference Or judgment on its distance Versus size Obviously something that's closer Is going to look bigger And in the sky It's a little bit different than looking down the street at something. You know, you have reference points, if you will. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot Mm -hmm. of that that goes into there. And sometimes people look up and they might see one type of bird and see something. They might see a blue heron, for example, and say pterodactyl.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm. Or a pelican.
1: Or a pelican. But now there are cases across the globe in some geographic areas where as in the case of an animal like the Ropen is reported that's quite different than a typical feathered thunderbird uh, suspect. Uh, there are reports of uh, quite widely spread globally of uh, very much uh pterodactyl or pterosaur-type flying creature. Have you received a lot of reports on that in your years?
0: I'm glad you brought that up, Mike, because it's actually a pretty important um, factor uh, or element of the Thunderbird mystery that we didn't touch on. Um, I do get a lot of reports and sightings of people that have claimed to have seen a a gigantic winged creature that's obviously not a Thunderbird or a big bird. uh, And they describe it, as you said, as looking like a pterosaur. Uh, Pterosaurs, of course, were not birds. They were specialized flying reptiles that flourished for uh, 200 million years, uh, and supposedly went extinct uh, about 66 million years ago at the end of the Cretaceous, at the end of the Mesozoic era. Uh, they looked, to, yeah, supposedly. Now they looked a little bit like birds in terms of they had a long beak. Uh, the the early ones, the rhamphorhynchoids, had teeth. The later ones, like the pterodactyls, didn't. Um, they had typically very Many of them had kind of distinctive crests uh, on their heads um, that were, we, you know, we scientists speculate they use them for, you know, attracting mates and so forth. But they also had reptilian features. Unlike birds, their wings were actually comprised of a membranous skin that was stretched out across their hand uh, up to their, the fourth finger on their hand. And this is exactly what people describe to me when they have described these pterosaur sightings is that this thing didn't look like a bird. It didn't have feathers on its wings. It had kind of a, uh, a leathery uh, kind of membranous uh, type of bat like wing. And people also describe these things as having the head crests and sometimes as having long reptilian tails, which again, some of the early pterosaurs had these long tails like the rampharynchoids. Um, Now, a lot of what we know about, what we think we know about pterosaurs is complete speculation because paleontologists find fossils and interpret them different ways but one recent development is that uh, scientists have now concluded that pterosaurs did have these kind of hair-like filaments all over their bodies, not on their wings but on their heads and bodies known as pycnofibers so they were, they weren't exactly feathers, they weren't exactly hair but it was kind of a a hair-like stuff covering the body. Yeah, so it... Yeah. And what that indicates is that pterosaurs may very well have been endothermic or... So... And they probably, because yeah. they were kind of the king... They were the kings of the sky for millions of years before birds came on the scene, so they probably radiated out into a lot of different habitats and ate fish and uh, small dinosaurs and other things. But... um I have a, actually a lot of sightings and people that have claimed to have seen these pterosaurs. Now, it's a little bit harder to wrap your head around than, than a giant bird because, again, there's no evidence that pterosaurs survived beyond 66 million years ago. But uh, the most famous ones that you mentioned, uh, for the island of, uh, of New Guinea, uh, there are sightings of something known as the Ropin the Dua or the Indava bird, there's different names for it. And it's, even though it's referred to as a type of bird, because it might look somewhat like a bird, it's typically viewed as kind of a pterosaur or pterodactyl. From Central Africa, we have uh, sightings of something called the Kangamato, which again is described as kind of looking like a pterosaur type of creature. And, um, but what's really surprising because, uh, you know, you would think that maybe in New Guinea, maybe in the jungles of Africa, there is a possibility that some of these pterosaurs could have survived in small numbers. I mean, it's not beyond impossible, but it is. You kind are of talking hard about, wrap,
1: yeah. You're, you're talking about in pretty, that situation. Pretty,
0: re, pretty remote areas that are in the, in a equatorial warm region that are, you know, very undiscovered, uh, very unexplored. What's hard to wrap your head around is when you have sightings of pterosaurs from places like Georgia and Montreal mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and Ohio yeah. and Southern California, which <laughs> I do have quite a number of those sightings that have come in. And the people that I've interviewed are, uh, you know, just like with the Thunderbirds, they come across typically as very credible people mm-hmm. that have seen something that, you know, they can't explain. And uh, the most recent sighting that I'm really excited about, um, actually I had two sheriff's deputies contact me uh, from here in Texas And uh, they were responding to a call one night uh, about uh, four years ago. They were responding to a call in a neighborhood of a giant flying creature that was terrorizing the neighborhood. And they claimed that they went out there – they claimed – told me that they went out there and actually saw this thing and that it looked like a pterosaur. And, uh, of course, they they have to remain off the record because they're worried about losing their jobs and – and so yeah. forth. But, um, you know, that's that's just one example of, you know, again, uh, you know, people that uh, are willing to kind of stick their necks out there because they've seen something remarkable and they don't know where else to go, who else to turn to. Um, so anyways, we we can talk about these pterosaur sightings if you like a little bit. Now, again, it, it gets mixed into the Thunderbird mythology just because they're basically they have wings <laughs> and they're very large. People have described them mm-hmm. as having 20 foot wingspans and stuff. But they're definitely not birds, but, um, but, you know, they have kind of gotten wrapped up in the whole Thunderbird mythology. Uh, and often these sightings of these pterosaur or pterodactyl types of animals are classified or at least superficially classified as Thunderbird sightings.
2: I think you yes, said it back and, when you said winged cryptids. I think that works well. Yes,
1: winged cryptids. <laughs> that's a good term, and it certainly <laughs> is. And, and Ken, you, of course, authored a book on this very subject uh, in 2007, I believe it was. Is that correct?
0: hmm That's correct. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and uh, can you tell book, us a little bit about that book?
0: Yeah, the book was called – my first book, it was called Big Bird, Modern Sightings of Flying Monsters. And it it was essentially based around the sightings that we talked about earlier in the Rio Grande Valley in South Central Texas. Um, but I, on, in fact, the cover of the book I did portray a pterosaur instead of a bird. And the reason I did that is because as I began to delve into many of the uh, the Big Bird sightings, if you know, again we're, we're using the word Big Bird, but it might be a bit of a misnomer. When I started delving into many of the big bird sightings in Texas uh, and down in the Rio Grande Valley, people did describe something that seemed to resemble more of a pterosaur than a bird uh, for a couple of reasons. Some people described it as having a long serpentine tail. Uh, People that saw it up close, like the guy that got attacked in Raymondville, said that it had a bat-like face. Not a a beak, but a bat-like face. That was the exact description. Hmm. And, um, you know, bat like wings and so forth. So it very well may have been a giant bird that people were encountering and are still encountering at that time, Um, you know, or there's kind of the outside chance that we could be dealing with something that looks very similar to a bird, uh, but is more reptilian in nature.
1: Yeah, and it's very important to keep that distinguishing uh, factor there and, and, and definitely identify. We're probably talking about two very different things, but yet quite related in, that, in the whole overall concept of the
0: winged cryptid thing.
1: And also, I understand you might be working on a new book that may have some of these reports.
0: Yeah, well, thanks for the plug, uh, Mike. I've got a new book that's <laughs> coming out in September, <laughs> It's called A Menagerie of Mysterious Beasts. And um, it's going to cover a whole range of cryptids that I've investigated over the years, uh, including you know, some Bigfoot, some lake monsters, uh, giant spiders and amphibians, all kinds of weird things. But there's an entire chapter in there that's going to be dedicated to the Thunderbird phenomenon and including Excellent. many never-before-published firsthand uh, accounts of Thunderbirds all over North America – and there's also a chapter that I call Modern Dragons. And in that chapter, there's a section where I uh, have a, a number of firsthand, never-before-published pterosaur sightings from around North America as well. Uh, I'm very fortunate, guys, in that one of the benefits of, of, you know, of having the opportunity to, to do, do television shows and travel around the country and write books and do lectures is that uh, a lot of people, eyewitnesses, do reach out to me. Uh, that have had sightings and experiences, and uh, in addition to that, sometimes people reach out to me that are completely off their rocker, <laughs> and are obviously really making not, up yeah. stories <laughs> or or hallucinating. But uh, I digress. There are people, credible people, that have reached out to me because they had nowhere else to turn, and they've sighted or encountered some animal that they can't identify that science doesn't acknowledge. Exists, and so you know the book is going to have a lot of those. Uh, uh, I, I I had the gracious consent of all of the eyewitnesses. I think there were only two people out of many many eyewitnesses that that didn't want me to publish their name, so I had to use a pseudonym. But virtually all the people that I interviewed for the book, uh, they owned it. They said, "Yeah, go ahead and use my name, publish my name. I I know what I saw, and I'll stand right. behind it." Good.
1: That's good. That's a good thing to hear. That's very encouraging as somebody that has tried to get people to come forward. It's good to hear that type of thing. And that's certainly very encouraging. And we're going to go ahead and post a link in the uh, chat room there for your previous work. And when can we look forward to seeing your your new book coming out?
0: It's going to be, uh, you can go to uh, Amazon and I think pre order, but I think September 8th, maybe September 9th, first week of September. Cool. Yep.
1: That, right. That's awesome. I can't wait for that to come out. It certainly sounds very exciting. Uh, we have a Lots special caller on there. the line. Yeah, it sounds like oh. it, Ken. That thing was, uh, I can't wait to get my hands on it. That's just awesome, man. <laughs> uh, I want to go ahead and bring in uh, our teammate here at MXR who happens to be on the line, uh, Miss Julie Wrench, a teammate and cool. co-host of Eyewitness Encounter Show here on the network. Hey, Julie, how you doing tonight? Uh, I think maybe Julie uh, can't hear us for some reason. <laughs> we'll try again. We'll mm-hmm. try Julie again in a minute she's still there. I probably, <clears throat> I couldn't no, hear I'm her sorry. anyway. No, I'm Oh, there she me is. Out. She's back. Yeah, we got some technical difficulties. Okay, cool. All right, no problem. Yeah, it's Block Talk's been uh, hiccuping quite a bit this evening, but we're trying to work through it. No big deal. How are you seeing her, Julie? I'm doing great. I had a question for Ken. Go
0: right ahead. Hi,
1: Julie. Hi, how are you? We appreciate you doing the show.
0: Oh, it's an honor to be on. Thank you so much for having Um, me. Great. Hey, what is your favorite cryptid and why? Oh, that is so tough. Oh, that's the bomb question (laughs) there. Uh, you know what? That that might change every day or every week because I'm constantly right. cycling through and there's always something new that's got my interest peaked. Um, Wow. What is my favorite? Well, obviously we've been talking about big birds here and those are near and dear to my heart because I've been so actively involved in investigating them. Um, but you know, uh, this is a different type of big bird that's always fascinated me are the accounts of Moas, living moas down from New Zealand. Now, of course, the moa was a rat, moas were ratites. They were flightless birds that were uh, indigenous to uh, the island of New Zealand until the six, uh, uh, allegedly until the 1600s when the, um, the first people that arrived in New Zealand, the Maori people, uh, yeah. drove them to extinction. But there are occasionally still sightings on the island of New Zealand of these giant ratite birds and the largest oh, wow. moa stood about twelve feet tall so I mean like literally giant mm. giant birds megafauna <laughs> birds that lived uh, probably during the ice age so uh, I've always been fascinated by the MOas because I mean you think about it uh, basically a 12 foot ostrich running around down there uh, and uh, this, <laughs> well, I've, yeah, never, I've, I've never had the I've never had the pleasure of going to New Zealand yet but uh, it, it seems like a pretty cool uh, uh, Place in terms of investigating that type Of thing lots of wilderness area And stuff
1: All right great well, that Sounds awesome I appreciate well, you Guys having me on No, <laughs> well, thanks well, thank again you. Good question Yes thank all you right. Julie that was a great question Thanks for calling Talk to you all later right, guys,
0: have a great show. Good night. Talk to you later
1: Thanks all right bye I well I have a question. Julie Go right ahead, Mr. Rain.
2: <laughs> okay. Um Ken, being on TV, doing the shows and everything, um, what do you think those shows have done as far as making people more aware and uh giving people courage to talk about their own sightings? Do you think that has helped? Cryptozoology, or heard it
0: um, big picture, I think it's helped um and that's why I continue to do shows um when I have an opportunity to because um I feel like the most important thing is to get kind of the message out there as as much good information as possible um not for necessarily for people that are interested in cryptozoology because we're all pretty much you know we're in it, <laughs> you know yeah bottom line but. <laughs> but for the for kind of the casual person that's sitting around at home flipping through the channels and suddenly they catch a few minutes of a, of a show and maybe you know maybe we're opening some minds you know maybe there are people out there that have you know never heard of Thunderbirds or, or some of these other cryptids, and suddenly they watch a show and uh, they, you know they find it compelling and they draw an interest or moreover maybe there's someone out there that's seen one of these things and they yeah. watch a show and they say, well, holy cow that's the I saw one of those giant birds. I never knew that's what that was. And then they yeah. suddenly they're get, getting in touch with a, researchers like yourselves or me or or whatever. So, um I understand that there's a lot of there are elements of quote-unquote reality TV yeah. uh, that are a little bit uh fictionalized at this point. And you know, I refer to them as cryptozoology, uh <laughs> where basically they're making up oh, cryptids and stories and Running right. through the woods and pretending to I'm writing that things. down now.
2: Let's see. <laughs> <laughs> it is a pretty good word. I like that.
1: That's a good one. You are to like. Uh, yeah, yeah. Never mind. We'll talk about that probably. But
0: uh, anyway, yeah. It, but some of those shows tend awesome. to tend to make us look a little bit. The re, you know they, they can tend to make us look a little bit nuts. Uh, you know uh, that's true. But <laughs> well, but I think there, there I certainly think... is a lot. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. It's no, I was just gonna say it's a double-edged sword. So I mean, you know, that's the that's the takeaway is you do have, in some respects, you have some shows that turn out being a little bit silly-looking, and people watch that and think, okay, those cryptozoology people—they're a little bit out there. But you know, I think moreover, in the big picture, it is important to just, you know, present the information so that people can talk about it at the water cooler at work the next day, or, you know, um, again, you know, again, it's a, it's just about opening people's minds and exposing them to. To the evidence
2: well that's what i really admire about you is you kind of have a common sense approach to it and i think that's really really important um to you know tell it like it is and you know keep it as scientific as possible but uh
1: Absolutely. yeah it's well i want to uh go ahead and thank everybody again I, i'm sorry to interrupt you there's a rain uh we're gonna be running okay. a little short on time here uh but uh I just want to go ahead and thank everyone again for bearing with us through the technical difficulties that we had at the launch of the show uh, sometimes uh you know it is a bit of, bit of a, a quirky thing and uh, we just try to work through it and we appreciate your patience. And your patience as well, Ken, you being very gracious this evening and we certainly appreciate your time very much.
2: Thanks so well,
0: much. Well, thank Ken. you guys. Thanks again for having uh, me on. It's definitely a pleasure oh, was and super. great questions and uh, I want to thank everyone who listened in as well. This was a this was a good time, and hopefully we can do it again real soon. All right. Well, I
1: hope so. And uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, I want to talk to you about that a little bit before we go. Uh, of course, we could go on forever about thunderbirds <laughs> and big bird sightings and pterod- t- pterodactyls. Excuse me.
2: I want to and, hear a little bit whatnot. more about the Moa. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and the MOA now and all these other great things but there's something coming up in a few months I want to spend just a moment to talk about briefly if we might. Uh it's something that's very important to me personally. Uh when you were asked earlier what you know, what crypt is really, you know, are really important to you, what it fascinates you the most of, and it's something near and dear to my heart and you know where I'm about to go with this. Can you tell me about the 2016 first inaugural Dogman Symposium in Defiance, Ohio, in August. <laughs>
0: Indeed. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks for bringing it up, Mike. <laughs> yes, the Dogman, all all fans of cryptozoology and the unexplained probably have heard of the Dogman. Um, thanks to the work of, of diligent researchers like my friend Linda Godfrey up there in Wisconsin, who's brought to light the fact that many people have claimed to have seen a cryptid that is described as a giant, hairy Man-like creature, not a Bigfoot, but a hairy man-like creature with a dog-like or canid-like head and canid-like features, basically a modern-day werewolf. And uh, just like the Thunderbird, you have werewolf legends all over North America and Europe and other parts of the world. So there is kind of a, a backstory or a history there. But uh, it occurred to me uh, last year that Dogman was becoming a very popular subject, and there was really not a forum or a venue for people to talk about the Dogman phenomenon and the evidence that's out there. So uh, we're pulling together. We pull together an event. It's going to be in Defiance, Ohio, which actually has a history of Dogman sightings, werewolf sightings going back to the 1970s. Um, I tried to have it in a central location so people could come in from Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Kentucky, or you know wherever they're wherever they're at. Uh, we have a great lineup of speakers: Linda Godfrey, Stan Gordon uh Lyle Blackburn, David Weatherly, myself, John Tenney, um and yeah, basically we're just going to be giving lectures about the Dogman and presenting the evidence. We're going to have vendors and it's a family-friendly event. And uh Saturday, August 6th in Defiance, Ohio. So I think if hopefully if there's any crypto or or Dogman enthusiasts out there, they'll they'll make a strong effort to come out and join us at the first ever Dogman Symposium.
2: Definitely. Well, it
1: certainly sounds like it, it's it's long overdue, and I, I'm really glad to see you and your partner step up and do this. Uh, it's very great that that this is going on because, like you say, there is so much awareness now and so much interest in the phenomenon, if you will, of the dog man or and what it might be. It's very captivating subject. And a lot of people do have a tremendous amount of interest in that, and I'm really glad to see this come to fruition. And and I can't thank you enough for doing that. And boy, what a lineup! The names you just rattled mm-hmm. off just boggled my mind. I mean, certainly uh, some of the most well thought of and respected uh, cryptozoologists and investigators uh, that that I could. You know, we certainly all of them would be on my short list. So that's very impressive uh, what you put together, certainly. Uh, can you tell us how you might be able to find out more about the Dogman Symposium and where one might be able to purchase a ticket if any are still available?
0: Well, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, we have, a, if anyone's on Facebook, uh, just look up 2016 Dogman Symposium and you can go to the event page. There's a link to buy tickets and uh, news and updates on what's going on. We also have a, an official website. And it's um dogman uh we, slash weird lectures. Uh it's on John Tenney's website, so people can go there as well. Uh or if you just do a Google search on Dogman Symposium, I'm sure it'll take you to the uh the event page or possibly even the Event page where you where you can purchase advanced tickets.
2: Okay, great.
1: Well I appreciate that. Well Derain, did you have anything you wanted to add before we let Ken go for the evening?
2: I have a million more questions.
1: But... <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Me too. Yeah, we could certainly talk all night, but unfortunately <laughs> we only have so many minutes allocated for blog talk this evening. But it's been such a great pleasure, Ken. Uh, and, Very and much. And I can't thank you enough. Let's plan on going ahead and uh, having you back on in a couple months to uh, talk uh, all about the Dogman Symposium, and let's try to get the news out about that.
0: That sounds good, guys. Let's definitely do that. Uh, Thanks again for having me on. I had a great time, and uh, thanks again to all the listeners. Thanks so much.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, Ken. You were great. Thanks, Durang. Thank you, listeners. Good night, everyone. Thank you for joining us. We apologize again for the technicals, but uh, I'm sure it will work itself out. Have a great evening. Thanks for joining us.